Today I would like to talk to you about my life. I'm going to start when my husband and I, when we were together building a, starting to build a home and our four children and we were all living with my mother-in-law, mother and father-in-law, everything was going really well. But after a little while, Bruce started getting sick. It was, we didn't work out what the problem was. We didn't know what was going on. And we realized that, you know, there was something wrong. He would come home and he would be so tired that he would almost fall asleep on the lounge. It was almost like that he couldn't walk from the car to the home. It made us start looking at what is wrong. We would go to the doctors and we would go, many, many times. It got to the stage where we were looking at them and they were looking at us and we knew what they were thinking. Hypochondriac. There's something, there's all in his head. There's nothing wrong with him. After about 18 months, we had moved into our new home and we had purchased 26 acres, built, owner built a home and we broke the bank. We only had, you know, around about $20 to live on a fortnight just to be able to get ahead and give our children something really amazing. In this time is when we sort of said we want to see a specialist. So we asked for a whole lot of bloods to be done and this specialist asked for a number of blood related um, diseases. Then we got the phone call. We want to see you and we want to see you today. So we dropped everything and we went in and saw this, um, this specialist, this hematologist, and he let us know that we have, that Bruce has leukemia, a form of leukemia called CLL, chronic lymphatic leukemia. And he said, look, it's actually, you know, nothing really to worry about it because we call it the old people's disease because most people who are diagnosed with this are usually in their 70s, 80s and they usually pass away from either pneumonia or old age or something else but not of CLL. He did say that it was very rare for someone to have that very young as he was only 34. So we really looked at what we can do. In the meantime, he was working at a, a wonderful place and he had children under him who were too naughty to be at school, but not quite naughty enough to be in jail. And he helped them find work, find purpose, understand what their life is about and that their choices don't have to be the same as anyone else in their in their family or in their area of influence that they are responsible for their own lives no one else i had a salon i owned a salon and we were trying to work out what are we going to do in the meantime we actually when we got the diagnosis we just sobbed and cried because we just thought oh my goodness he's going to die even though they tell you not to worry about it for fact that they've told you you have leukemia. And when you are diagnosed with leukemia or, or cancer or some form, your brain automatically goes into a grieving mode. 
Once we had realized what we were doing, we went, okay, let's get in and let's have a look and see what we need to do. So we got on to um, Houston and the cancer capital of the world and we spoke to, I can't remember their name now, but they're an amazing um, person for us who was a scientist and a doctor. They put us onto a lot of maverick things to actually keep everything at bay and keep him well. So we did. We called it Bruce's Brew and we, we loved it. Well, we didn't love it, but it was doing wonders. He felt better. He looked better and he had energy. But in the meantime, while we were finding out what was wrong with him, we realized that he was celiac. So we cut out a lot of all the gluten and the wheats and all of that and realized that, oh my goodness, you're going to die anyway, because there's nothing you can eat. And this was before there was anything that was gluten-free in the shops. So we're talking about 30 years ago. So 30 years ago, finding out that you have celiac disease and also that you have leukemia. You have four children and you have bills, units, and you have got priorities. So how do you turn this around? Well, we're going to jump forward 10 years. Nine, nine years, we went on a holiday. We went over, over east. We took the family. We traveled across Australia. We got to Adelaide, stayed in Adelaide for a few days, stayed in Melbourne for a few days, stayed in Sydney for a week, caught up with a whole lot of friends. And then we went up to the Gold Coast, took them to Movie World and Dream, um, Dream World, I think it is. And it was just fantastic. We had the best, best holiday. In the meantime, this is December 2001. In the September 2001 was 9-11. And automatically, you know exactly where you were when that all happened. So as we traveled across Australia, there were no cars. There was one police officer pulled us up in the, on the um, Nullarbor and we hadn't passed a car in hours. He pulled us up and he just wanted to talk. And we was, was just doing a license check and making sure we were okay. And we said, we haven't passed a car. He said, you are the first car I have seen in four hours. He said, normally this is our busiest time. But because of 9-11, no one was leaving. Where we were staying were, was in hotels because I didn't want to stay at a caravan park or anywhere because it meant that I had to do the work. And this was my holiday too. When we got to all these places, they upgraded us, gave us the best suites, the nicest places because no one was booking. So we had a great holiday at five-star places at three-star prices. When we got back in the January, late January, everything went back to normal. When then he saw something, he saw a property of where there were two nine-acre lots and we were going to join them together. We we're going to build our dream home. And he says, we're moving. And I went, no, we're not. He goes, yeah, we are. We're moving. We're, we're too far out. Now the kids are going to start getting their licenses and moving on. We need to come closer to the city. So we would have come about 20 minutes closer. So we put the home on the market, sold within three hours of putting it on, on the website, and it was sight unseen. 
so we moved. We had we moved into a tiny weeny little cottage that was on the campuses of where he was working. So for all of 2002, we were living here. It, we called it Bug City. And the Bug City is that because it's an old home that was built in the early 1900s, there were cracks to galore all the way through this. We would put all the outside lights on and have no lights on in the house so the bugs would stay outside. It was hilarious. There were six of us. My husband, myself and the four kids in this tiny, weeny little cottage. But it was fun. In the meantime, we had purchased the blocks and we were waiting for the two blocks to be amalgamated, to put together. And this is in the February, March of 2001. Sorry, 2002. So we had done all of this. They should have only taken six weeks. And we couldn't understand why it was taking so long. Anyway, we're going forward. We're going forward now to November. Late November, early December. And all of a sudden, we got a phone call saying, the blocks have been put together. You can now start building. We have a title. We went, yay, fantastic. So we had already purchased all the zisolation um, we needed for the roof. We'd purchased a big, massive front door. We had purchased baths. We had purchased a whole lot of things ready to build this home. That was on the Thursday that we got the news. On the Friday, we had the specialist appointment. And we had noticed that there was a number of things that had changed in Bruce. We didn't really pinpoint it because we were living in this little cottage, so we weren't quite cooking the same as we used to. We weren't quite doing the Bruce's brew as we used to. We weren't quite doing the green smoothies as we used to. We did notice, because he was working longer hours and I was working longer hours, is that his stomach was getting a lot larger, and which was unusual because he was a very fit man. His energy levels had dropped and his libido had gone to nothing for months, months and months. But even though we're busy and working towards a goal, it didn't really, we didn't really notice it until we got to the specialist. So he would always go and have his bloods done a week before. We would see the specialist and he would tell us the results. The results were not good. His white cell count had gone massively high. They should have been around about 10 to 12 and they were now sitting at 143. This leukemia had changed and we needed to do treatment straight away. He said, I want you in hospital in the next couple of weeks. And we went, we can't. We're living in this little tiny cottage. Give us a little bit of time to sell the block. And the reason why is that they said we need to have a home that is almost germ-free, that is bacteria-free. We couldn't live in this little tiny cottage while we were going to take another 12 months to build with all these bugs around that I couldn't keep. 100% bacteria-free from him. So in this, what we had to do is we had to manoeuvre and change things. 
So on the Sunday, we rang the agent and we put the property on the market. On the Monday, it sold. On the Tuesday, we found, or he found, a property that we wanted to move into. We moved in, we had a whole lot of friends come and help us move and that was just amazing. We have, we do have the most amazing friends and I cannot thank any of them enough. So in the this January 2002, 2003, we moved into this five acre property, beautiful house. It was absolutely a lovely house and Bruce went into hospital in the February. He spent pretty much four, three to four weeks every month and he would come home for a week for all of 2003. We tried to get this white cell count down. It would come down to around about 40 odd and then it would go back up again. He was on experimental chemo as well as the traditional chemo. Every chemo we tried, he reacted to. Some worked, some didn't. And it made it really hard because going through the chemo, it changes his personality slightly. He got a little angry that he would never do. He never snapped at me. And he was an amazing man. In the meantime, I'm trying to keep together this home and, and the children. The eldest child had already moved out and he was working away, but I still had three children at school. When we, <clears throat> when we were going through all of this, we had to find out where this was going to go because the white cell counts weren't working. So I had a conference coming up in the October and I didn't want to go. And Bruce said, you have to go. You need a break. I need to get well. We had three weeks off where he had to put on as much weight as he can so that he can tackle this last round of chemo before he had a bone marrow transplant. Bruce was the oldest of five boys and they're all very different, but they all stepped up 100% to have their blood tested to see if they were the same blood type as Bruce to have a bone marrow. One of them came up as 98% match. Great, we have it. I went away in the October for one week and Bruce was home for the two weeks, well, three weeks, to fatten up ice cream, banana, everything that you wanted you could eat to fatten up so that he became really well and healthy or healthier and fatter so that he could handle what was about to come. When they do the transplant, they do a massive hit of chemo, then to drop all the white blood cells, then have two, three days for him to feel a little well, and then to the bone marrow transplant. In the meantime, his brother had been injecting himself every day to release new bone marrow cells. And then they came in, they were harvested from him through a blood transfusion of taking it out. And then Bruce's levels still weren't low enough. They were still sitting at 42. They needed to be down to at least the, the minimum of or the maximum of around about 12 to 15. 
So it was our only chance. But we still went ahead with it because we had to try it. We had the bone marrow transplant. Everything was seemed to be fine. The daughter had gone away for her leavers, had other two children at home. And as the weeks went on, we realized that this wasn't working. He was getting sicker. I went in on the Friday and Bruce and I just sat with each other. We didn't talk. We held each other. Not one word was spoken. For nearly four hours, we held each other because we knew that it hadn't worked. On my way home, I sobbed. I don't know how I drove home through my tears, but I did. On the Saturday morning, I got a phone call from the specialist. We need to see you and we need to see you now. So bravely, I drove in there with a smile and there was the specialist, another couple of doctors and a couple of nurses. I sat on the bed next to Bruce and the specialist said, there is nothing else we can do for you. It hasn't worked. We have got some different trial things that we can try on him. And I went, hang on a minute, back up, hold on. There is no way you're going to put any more needles into my husband. He's been poked and prodded so much over 12 months. He can't have any more. So we sat there and we asked, what do we do to make him well? And they said, we need to give him a massive amount of antibiotics to keep him going for a lot longer. It would kill anyone else who was well, but this would keep him going. If we took him off everything right there and then, he probably would have had 48 hours to live. So on that Saturday afternoon after we'd had this big discussion, I got in the car. I haven't drunk for nearly 20-something years. Oh, probably... 15 years. I All I wanted to do was drive and go and get a bottle of Southern Comfort and drown my sorrows. I never understood that saying, driven to drink, until that point. I drove home and I sobbed. And I thought, what am I going to do? How are we going to bring him home? And I had all these things going through my mind while I'm sobbing my heart out driving. Then I thought, I've got to ring his brother. So he's the eldest of five boys. The third, the middle brother, is the one that he's the closest to. He's the one that did the bone marrow. But I rang his next brother down, the second brother. And I rang him and I said, I need your help. They came up and saw me at home and we told him what had happened. And I said, we need to let the family know and we need to do it now. All the grand, all of our children had gone up to... Bruce's parents' place, which was up in the country. They had five acres and they were all there. Will had organised that all the kids leave on the Sunday around 12 o'clock. They all have to go because we needed the siblings all to go up there so I could let them know that their son and their brother 
was going to die. Will came and picked me up and we went up there. It was really hard and I think they all knew something was up. I told them that we had done everything possible and that Bruce was not going to make it. We had to organise for him to come home and so that he would pass away in our own home, not in the hospital. He'd been there too long. He needed to be with his family and friends. Once I had delivered this, I didn't know what I had done. I was told later, but apparently I collapsed. My legs went out from under me and I had this apparently howling scream cry. I had just told them that they were losing their brother and their son. I was losing my husband. My children were losing their father. He was all of 34. So me being me, we pulled ourselves together and we thought, what are we going to do? Went and saw him on the Sunday and we had to organise for hospice to come and organise the bedroom at home for him to come up. We had to organise silver chain to come around and the little things we had to do, like put a post out the front with alfoil wrapped around it so that when they had to come during at night time, that would stand out, that they knew that was the house they had to come to. A good mate of ours that we'd known for many years since childhood, he rang and he said, how are you going to bring Bruce home? We went, I don't, just in the car. He said, leave it with me. So he rang a mate of his because we're car people. And so he rang a mate of his and we had to organise this for home. And all of Bruce wanted to do was come home. But we had to have everything organised at home first. On the Wednesday, it was time for Bruce to leave. This good mate Dave had organised for a GT40 to bring Bruce home. It was amazing little, fast, super fast car that was only 40 centimetres from the ground. As Bruce was walking down the corridor, well, wheelchair down the corridor from the BMTU, which is the Bone Marrow Transplantation Unit in Royal Perth Hospital. As he was leaving, we had streamers and balloons and we had his brother, his mum, myself there. And he rang the bell to say that he was leaving for the last time. Did it mean he was coming back? Absolutely not. Did it mean he was going to live? No way. But he was leaving the hospital for the last time. We got down into the foyer and there was this car and he was wrapped to be able to go home in that. So he hopped in the car. It was really hard for him to get in. And I followed him. In, in the Commodore and we followed him all the way around and those that live in Perth will know the bypass. We pulled over where the train bridge is so that there was a bit of shade because there was no ventilation through the car and he was getting hot so they had to lift the door up so we had a little bit of ventilation. I pulled in behind. Then we still had about 20 minutes to get home. We'd already travelled about 20 minutes so as they were about to take off, I turned around and looked to see if there was any come, anyone coming so I could pull out. I looked forward and there was no car. It was gone. I didn't even see it. 
So I, I pulled out and put my foot down as quick as I can, and they were already at the lights. Apparently, Bruce said, I don't have long to live, but put your foot into it and give me a thrill like nothing. Well, he, when we got home, he showed the big massive bruise that he had on his shoulder. He said, no one can say they've got a bruise like that from a GD40. And because he had leukemia and his platelets were next to nothing, he bruised so easily. He loved the ride home. His mum and dad were there. Um, his good mate was there. The kids were all there as we welcomed him home. We had to help him out of the car and help him inside. And remember, he's all of 44. He was a good, strong, solid man that was always around about your 85, 85, 86 kilo. He was now down to about 42 kilo. There wasn't much of him, skin and bone, but he could hardly walk. He could keep, hardly keep his frame up. So we brought him in. So we did something. The silver chains came round and they introduced us. We had Joan and Jane. They were two of the amazing people that I will never, ever forget. And they gave me some of the best advice that I have passed on to many since. She said, do not let people come into your home and steal your time away from Bruce, who have not been in your life constantly. And I thought, really? Well, I'll tell you what, she was right. Our phone rang. There were people that we hadn't seen for 20 years that they wanted to come and see Bruce and say goodbye. And I, and like they told me, I had to be strong. I had to be tough. And if you have to be, you have to play the bitch. Well, I did. I got known for that. And I really didn't care. Why should I let someone come into our life who hadn't seen Bruce while he was alive that they were quite happy to see him as he was passing away so that they can say, oh, we went and saw Bruce on his deathbed. Well, I'm sorry, but that was a whole lot of crap and these these ladies who were the silver chain were brilliant. We had a party. We had a big gathering of our good family and friends to come and say goodbye to him spend time with him. We had this one awesome day. We've got video, we've got um, we've got photos of this amazing day of spending time with this amazing man. There was one thing he also wanted to do. He wanted to have a final shoot. So having guns, very responsible gun owners, we went out onto the property with his brothers and a couple of friends and we had this shoot and it was great. We loved it and it was amazing. Then coming back home, we now closed the door. Only his siblings, our parents, my siblings, our children were the only ones in that were allowed to see Bruce. For his final few days, they were the only ones that were able to be in our, in our space, in seeing Bruce, looking after him, being there. But one thing everyone said who came and saw him through that through the time prior to when we closed the doors 
is they all said that they left with the blessing. They all wanted to comfort Bruce. It was Bruce comforting them. He was an amazing man. It was incredible as to how he took his final days. He knew that he was dying. He knew that he was leaving. But his only thoughts were for those around him, for his family, his wife and his children. On the 27th of December at 9.27am, Bruce had he took his final breath. It was a Saturday morning. It was warm, not hot, not cold, no clouds in the sky. But it was a beautiful, peaceful, lovely day. He passed away with his mum, myself and the four children all around with him. It was a very peaceful death. It was something I've never experienced ever before, and I don't ever want to experience it again. But it wasn't clinical, it wasn't in a hospital, it wasn't in a car accident. And one thing that I am so blessed is that I know I had it so much better than anyone else out there whose husband or family member left for work and didn't come home or left and they disappeared or in a car accident and they never got to say goodbye. We got to say goodbye. We got to say our final goodbyes. We got to tell each other, we love you. We knew where he was. So I consider myself a very lucky and blessed woman. In the meantime, there were so many things that had happened that we had to put into place. We had to organise the funeral now. Six months prior, I had already gone to a funeral home and semi-organised the funeral because I knew I wouldn't want to do it at the end. So all I had to do was ring them because they had everything there. I rang his brother and he took over and organised everything. We had beautiful music. We had photos and a slideshow. And the funeral went for two and a half hours. He wanted everyone to have their say. He wanted his former boss to have his say my boss to have his say because they supported me, the company I was with, I could not speak more highly of them. They totally were there for me when I needed them. My best friends were there for me. Even when I couldn't talk, they were there for me. We have an amazing connection of friends and it all came together. There were just over 550 people at the funeral on the 31st of December 2003. Bruce said right at the very beginning, this year is on hold. Next year, we will begin a new year one way or the other. So on the 31st of December 2003, his life ended. 
on the 1st of January 2004, I had to start a new life without my husband. It was the beginning of a new year, with or without, and that's what he wanted. How did we cope? Well, that's another story. But I wanted to let you know that I have been through something, something traumatic for that 12 months of hell in the hospital. I was 41. I was now a single parent of four children. I had units, cars and a mortgage. How was I going to cope through that? So from this one, love your loved ones. You don't know what's around the corner. Take love wherever you can get it. Don't suffer fools. And these are the things that I do. This coming December, it will be 19 years since Bruce passed away. And we will go into what I have done in the future. But for now, I hope you enjoyed this part of my life, this 12 months of my life that has not defined me, but has changed me. I now have an empathy for many people. I'm also able to laugh. I've moved on, but that 12 months taught me more about life and more about me and more about humanity than anything else. So signing off now, I'm Kerry Hortrow. My business is Brain Thinking and love your loved ones.